Welcome to the 19th episode of Primary Care Update. I'm Dr. Mark A. Bell. I'm a family physician, professor at the University of Georgia, and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus, which is an evidence-based online primary care reference with 800 topics, thousands of calculators, lots of decision support tools, and it includes a free subscription to every poem all year long. Check it out at www.essentialevidenceplus.com. Primary Care Update is our summary of recent research, including a lot of the poems that we think are relevant to primary care medicine. The opinions expressed are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. I'm joined again today by my friends, Dr. John Hickner, family physician and editor of JFP, and Dr. Henry Berry, professor of family medicine at MSU. Henry, how are you doing? I'm okay, but I'm really more concerned about your knee. Tell us what's been going on. I hope you're healing. Well, it just tweaked my knee. I have old arthritic knees, and they get tweaked once in a while. It's uh, the the good thing is I can still ride my bike as far as I want, so I'm able to get out and enjoy um, the outdoors here back in Michigan for a, a while. So um, good to be back, John. How are you? Good, good. Our Beneteau 35 foot sailboat is now in the water, so we're getting it rigged and ready to sail. Can't wait to see it. It's sail over. Got a nice marina here in, in Onekama. Anyway, um, the first poem is about FIT testing, fecal immunochemical testing. And it kind of bothers me because the T in FIT is testing, and yet we always call it FIT testing. On the other hand, saying phi testing just doesn't seem right either. So we'll stick with FIT testing. And the question is, how well does do different levels of this test rule in or rule out colon cancer? It was done by Imperiali and colleagues published in Annals of Internal Medicine, 2019, volume 170, page 319. So they did a meta-analysis. They identified 31 studies, over 120,000 patients. They did a a good, usual, kind of all the good quality meta-analysis stuff. They looked at the quality of the studies and concluded that the quality of the studies was high. Generally, the reference standard was, of course, colonoscopy. Test characteristics varied by the cutoff. And that's something listeners may not be as familiar with, there are different kinds of FIT tests. Some of them are qualitative. They just have a yes, no answer. Some of them are quantitative and they give you a number of basically um, hemoglobin per gram. So 10 micrograms per gram, 20 micrograms per gram, that kind of thing. And actually different countries around the world have set the cutoff based on what their capacity is for colonoscopy. And here in the US, we have very high capacity for colonoscopy, lots of people doing it. In other countries where they don't have that infrastructure built out, they may set a higher cutoff in order to limit the number of colonoscopies that are needed. Now, that will reduce sensitivity but improve specificity. Um, So what they found here was that at a cutoff of less than 10 micrograms per gram, which is a fairly low cutoff, if you, you achieve that result less than 10, the likelihood ratio is 0.1. Sensitivity is 91%. So that means only a very small fraction of cancers would slip through. Very good at ruling out if it's less than 10. They also looked at greater than 20 and concluded that that was actually quite good at ruling in. Positive likelihood ratio of about 16. This was for colorectal cancer. For advanced adenoma, the negative likelihood ratios uh, was only 0.76 at the cutoff of less than 10. And the positive was a likelihood ratio of six for greater than 20. So not as good. And that's one of the concerns. So kind of the bottom line is FIT is good at ruling out at a cutoff less than 10. It's not so good ruling. I'm sorry. It's also good at ruling in at a cutoff greater than 20. But that begs a couple of questions. One is, 
What do you do about those people who are 10 to 20? Do you perhaps repeat the test at a shorter interval? Uh, depending on the capacity in the country, you may choose to do endoscopy in those patients. Um, and then also the, the larger question that we really have to consider is, you know, it's not about the sensitivity and specificity of a test. It's about does using this as a screening test repeatedly over a 10 or 20 year period every year, every two years, does that reduce colorectal cancer mortality as well as colonoscopy? There's some studies going on right now. A lot of countries have concluded based on observational data and modeling data that it does, but we really don't have a definitive answer yet. So stay tuned for the next few years um, as those study results start coming in. John, any comment about that? Here in the U.S., I think no doubt colonoscopy is the most popular but I think the role in most places in the U.S. is for using FIT for those who just don't want to have the colonoscopy and in healthcare systems with limited resources in the U.S. For example, the public health system in the Los Angeles area begins with the FIT testing and then uses colonoscopy as backup. So I think family doctors need to know about this test and should be using it frequently for those who are not interested in colonoscopy. Yeah, great point. That certainly seems to be the standard of care here. Although um, the uh, I think the gastroenterology groups, there's several gastroenterology groups, and they got together and made what they call the multi-society guidelines. And they actually elevate FIT and colonoscopy as the two preferred tests, and then everything else is below that. So, And they don't actually say definitely do colonoscopy if you can. They just say either of those is a good option. And, um, and in other countries, that's kind of how it's treated, understanding that the sort of medical culture here in the U.S. is to have a bias toward colonoscopy. Henry, are you up to date on your colonoscopies? Um, actually, I am. I've been through two, and I'm not looking forward to future ones, but, you know, such is the curse of the colonoscopy. Uh, before I, I comment much, uh, Mark, what is Cologuard? Is that a fit test or is that something else? Cologuard is, uh, I'm looking across Lake Michigan right now at where they make it over in Madison, Wisconsin, Wisconsin. And they, uh, it is a combination of a fit test plus a fecal DNA test. And in a direct comparison study, actually Imperiali, the guy that wrote this study, did that study. It was somewhat more sensitive, but less specific than a fit test alone. And that resulted in better detection on a one-time basis but also a lot more, about twice as many colonoscopies were needed to follow up on the false positives. And it costs $500 compared to $5 for a fit test. So there's a little difference there too. Yeah. So part of my the reason for asking is that people sometimes get confused and Cologuard, to my knowledge, is only marketed widely on television direct to patients. Um, in 2017, we actually reviewed a Markov model by Bar Barzi published in Cancer. This was a government-funded synthesis using information from multiple sources. It changed the um, various assumptions over time as risk levels changed. Um, while it didn't include harms, it concluded that colonoscopy was the most effective and that while fecal DNA was more effective than fit or fecal occult blood testing, but when you added the cost in, they could find no set of assumptions under which fecal DNA would ever be cost effective. Really, because of the lower specificity and the, the higher number of follow-up tests needed? 
So even if the Correct. test itself was made as cheap as possible. Yeah. So certainly $500. I don't know of anyone, any other country that uses it. I, I could be mistaken, but I'm not aware of any other country that's approved it. And yeah, the, the dancing box is what I call it on, on TV that jumps into the toilet and gets shat upon. And then uh, there, goes our, there goes our PG rating. Um, and then, then bounces out of the toilet and merrily closes itself up and jumps into the FedEx fan. Yeah, I love those commercials. Hey, um, Henry, I think it's time to hear from you about the quiz. Yeah. So this quiz is about metformin. It's the world's most widely prescribed medication for treating patients with type 2 diabetes, and it is not without controversy. So which of the following statements are false? One, it was pulled from the market because it causes lactic acidosis. Two, it has a clearly understood mechanism of action. Three, it is unsafe for use in most patients. Four, it is among the least expensive medications around. Five, it clearly decreases mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. Stay tuned. Yeah, I think you kind of got me there. So I'm looking forward to hearing the answer to that one. Mm -hmm. uh, John, I think it's your turn. You're going to tell us a little bit about uh, POCUS. My study is a meta-analysis uh, written by Li and Yun and published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine this year, 2019, volume 37, starting on page 696. The title is Diagnostic Performance of Emergency Physician Performed Point-of-Care Ultrasound for Acute Appendicitis. So the setting, obviously, is emergency departments and not our primary care offices. They were able to find 17 studies that included both children and adults in a total of 2,385 patients they used as the gold standard surgical finding of acute appendicitis at the time of operation. And the cutoff criteria for the ultrasound was mostly seven or six millimeters, mostly six millimeters in terms of the diameter of the appendix. The study qualities were generally pretty good with not much risk of bias and, and none were seriously flawed. The range of appendicitis in these studies is interesting because it ranged from 24% up to 75%. So you already have a fairly high pretest probability, as one would expect, before they applied the ultrasound. So these were folks suspected of having acute appendicitis. Pretty good overall sensitivity at 84%, uh, quite good specificity at 91%. So the likelihood ratios really look quite good with a likelihood ratio positive of 9.3 and negative of 0.18. So this would qualify as being a good diagnostic test. In children, it was even better with a 95% sensitivity and 95% specificity. So really good likelihood ratios, close to 20 positive and 0.05 negative. So in other words, point-of-care ultrasound performed by emergency room physicians looks quite good. In fact, they did not find any statistically significant difference in the ED physicians versus radiologists in the studies in which that comparison was made. So it's, it's interesting to see that for an old and fairly standard disease, we're seeing some changes in management, including diagnosis and also treatment, as we've talked about before, uh, treating appendicitis with uh, antibiotics as an option instead of surgery. So very interesting to see a disease management and diagnosis evolve over time. 
Henry, thoughts? Yeah, so I um, wrote this original poem, and one of the things, two things struck me. One was that the rate of appendicitis, as John pointed out, was really quite high, which made me wonder if the emergency room physicians were using some sort of clinical decision support tool to be able to uh, stratify patients into higher risk versus lower risk groups. And so, and that leads to the second piece, which is the radiologists did a little bit better, but not statistically significant. But generally, the radiologists are completely blinded to the clinical circumstances, where, whereas the uh, people doing the point of care ultrasound generally know the clinical setting. And so how much of that is the overall gestalt combined with the, um, the that um, increased pretest probability? So that's the first point. Um, and while they used a, a specific criterion, there is still this fuzziness around the ultimate diagnosis. The, the last part is that we've got a whole bunch of studies on point-of-care ultrasound, and I know that, Mark, you wrote a commentary not too long ago about this, but you know this is becoming so commonplace that it's being incorporated into medical school curricula as part of the clinical skills courses. So this is something that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, um, great points, Henry. And I did actually do a meta-analysis a while back about of the Alvarado score. That's the most commonly used uh, score and it, it's I can't remember what all the letters stand for, but I don't think it was named after somebody named Alvarado. But it's it's a, a fairly widely used uh, clinical decision rule that has pretty good accuracy in the low risk and high risk in terms of ruling in and ruling out. We found overall prevalences in these studies of a third in adults and two thirds in kids. So that's kind of in the in the range that we're talking about with these studies. I suspect that not everybody went to the. I certainly hope not everybody went to the OR. I'm assuming that. Patients who didn't go to the OR just had clinical follow-up as their reference standard because if you, if you had 24% appendicitis rate in the OR, that would be pretty awful. So um, right. yeah, the Alvarado, so these are patients with clinically suspected appendicitis to even get in the door and then to get the ultrasound. And then of those who were you know diagnosed as high risk, they probably uh, went to the OR, the low risk were monitored and perhaps sent home eventually. But yeah, the POCUS is certainly um, uh, promising and there are lots of interesting ways it can be used. I think a, a good cautionary tale though is out of um, Korea and Japan, particular Korea, where they started doing widespread point of care ultrasound to look at the thyroid. Thyroids, it's right there. It's right in front of you, close to the surface. And they had a huge explosion in the number of thyroid tumors or thyroid cancers, and I'm putting air quotes around cancers diagnosed, about a 14-fold increase with no change in mortality. So rampant overdiagnosis and well-meaning, well-intentioned, but I think we have to be careful to go poking around and looking for things until we're fairly confident that patients are going to benefit from that. So great, uh, great study. And um, John, any, uh, let's, oh, just... Just one more comment to yeah, highlight yeah. this issue that one has to be suspicious of appendicitis. Uh, one shouldn't willy-nilly say, oh, well, it could be appendicitis. Why don't we do an ultrasound? I think that would change the test characteristics a mm -hmm. lot. Yeah, exactly. If you have a 5% pretest probability and you do this, even if your likelihood ratios are pretty good, most of the positives will not have appendicitis. And so, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. 
Henry, the last poem is yours. It's about buprenorphine. Yeah, so this study asks the question, which treatments are effective in improving outcomes in neonates with abstinence syndrome? This was published by Disher et al. in January in JAMA Pediatrics. So I picked this not because many of us are going to be managing these patients, but largely as an awareness uh, function. You know, with the higher rates of opioid use, prescription and non-prescription, especially in rural areas with our primary care physicians, midwives, perhaps delivering babies who might in fact go through withdrawal syndromes unexpectedly. I thought this was an important thing for us to know about. So neonatal abstinence syndrome is basically a group of symptoms such as jitteriness, high-pitched cry, diaphoresis, diarrhea, and so forth that occur in neonates who have been exposed to opioids during pregnancy. These authors did a network meta-analysis, and they did lots of good things um, to identify randomized trials that compared at least two pharmacologic agents. They included 18 small trials with between 25 and 139 participants, and there was a lot of methodologic variability among the trials types of protocols, using explicit versus implicit outcome assessments, thresholds for treatment, and so on. Very few of the studies, by the way, were at low risk of bias. Um, so with all of this heterogeneity and the overall poor quality of the studies, one could certainly argue it makes no sense to pool the data. And a pet peeve of mine is that these authors just threw caution to the wind and decided, what the heck, we're still going to do this. That was what we planned to do anyway. So the main outcomes of interest were things like duration of treatment, length of stay, and how long the neonates needed additional treatment as opposed to how long they were having severe symptoms and the like. So the there was a whole bunch of different treatments, including tincture of opium and tincture of opium plus clonidine, methadone, phenobarbital, but ultimately buprenorphine and morphine had the most robust effects. And it actually had the sh shortest duration of treatment by nearly 13 days and the shortest length of stay by nearly 12 days. So buprenorphine was actually much more effective in those outcomes than morphine. So I think ultimately we probably need better quality data, but these are rather impressive kinds of um, results that we should at least be thinking about this until the better data come along. Yeah, this was uh, this was interesting, and you know I, I agree with you totally. Um, I, I call it LCS, little crappy studies, and you know there were a lot of small, methodologically challenged studies, but I think it does give us sort of the best answer for now. Uh, network meta-analysis has its own set of concerns. You know, you are essentially using the transitive property where you have, you know, two comparisons with to a common drug or a common comparator, and then you try to infer how well each of the uh, other drugs is doing compared to each other indirectly. And so there's uh, not only meta-analysis has its own range of problems, and these were not the greatest studies, but the network meta-analysis injects uh, still a little more uncertainty into it. Yeah, that was the old way that we used to pick national titles in football. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Michigan beat Washington, Washington beat UCLA, therefore Michigan's better than UCLA. Right. And that's exactly what this kind of study is. Great analogy, Henry. John, any final comments on this one? Henry, I'm glad you mentioned rural areas. Uh, here in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is very rural, we have the highest incidence 
of opioid withdrawal in infants in the nation. So, and this is true of some other rural areas in the country. So I think rural physicians especially need to be aware of this. Yeah, great point. Great point. Henry, time for the answer to the quiz. All right. So which of the following statements about metformin are false? It was pulled from the market because it caused lactic acidosis. It has a clearly understood mechanism of action. It is unsafe for use in a large number of patients. It is among the least expensive medications around, and it clearly decreases mortality in patients with type 2 diabetes. So last week's JAMA included a really nice two-page summary of metformin by Flory and Lipska, and they report that metformin has been around a really long time, and we have over 60 years worth of clinical experience and clinical trial data. It's a plant-based biguanide, a drug class that's been used widely to treat diabetes since the 1950s. Two other biguanides were withdrawn from clinical use because they caused severe lactic acidosis. It turns out that metformin was taken off the U.S. market because of concerns, but it was subsequently proven to be safe and effective and was reintroduced in 1995. Over the last 60 years, its safety has been confirmed with the exception of clinically important lactic acidosis in extreme overdoses and in patients with advanced liver disease, heart failure, and chronic kidney disease. So a small subset of patients who would fit that. It's available generically, and in most pharmacies can be purchased for about $4. One of our local pharmacy chains actually gives it away for free. So that gives you an idea as to how um, expensive this can be. While we know that it acts in the liver and blocks gluconeogenesis by messing up mitochondrial doohickeys and that it also increases insulin sensitivity, we really don't have a full understanding of how it works to improve clinical outcomes. It became famous in the 1990s when the 34th publication from the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study showed that it improved clinical outcomes such as all-cause mortality, MI, et cetera, among obese patients taking metformin, and it did that independent of glycemic control. Since that time, the American Diabetes Association has identified it as it should be our first-line drug, but not without some controversy. So, for example, the evidence for cardiovascular and mortality benefits is now regarded as weak given the small subgroup size and because the trial was conducted back in the 70s. And in, you know, like in, we've seen recently in the case of aspirin, it may not be as effective in an era when we're more aggressive about blood pressure control and statins, things of that nature. Additionally, the UK PDS trial included a subgroup of patients who were already taking a sulfonylurea and were randomized to intensification with metformin. And in that group, there was an 11% absolute higher mortality in the metformin group. That would be a number needed to harm of about nine. But that has not been seen in other studies. And in fact, just last month, the Cochrane has a systematic review that looked at combination treatment that found inconclusive evidence. So there you have it. Metformin is certainly still part of our armamentarium, not without controversy. Stay tuned. Thank you, Henry. That was a very helpful review. Henry, that was a great review. I agree. And um, I think, you know, I get incredibly frustrated that for such a common condition, we don't have a clear, I mean, you know, how hard would it be to do 
a randomized trial comparing asulfonuria versus metformin versus SGLT2 versus, you know, other newer classes, and then having a protocol for adding a second and or a third drug and seeing how patients do, you know, follow them for 10 years. I mean, it, it's, it seems like we need to have that kind of a study. And I, I'm just frustrated that we haven't done it yet. Well, recall anyway. that uh, re- recall that Congress has largely um, said that it will not support comparative effectiveness research, and certainly that's the policy of HHS. And so, the only entity that would have the oomph to pull that off is the National Institutes of Diabetes, Digestive, and Kidney Diseases. Yeah, at least here in the in the U.S. And uh, maybe if we won't do it here. Maybe someone overseas will do it. We'll see. Um, but it's, uh, again, frustrating that we don't have better evidence for such a common condition, important condition. Well, thanks, guys. Um, I hope uh, everyone enjoyed listening to today's discussion. We certainly enjoy it. And uh, please tell your friends, uh, you know, find us on social media, go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, and that helps us find uh, new listeners. We'll talk to you soon with more primary care updates. <laughs>